morning. Fall break crowds, it's good to see you all. Yeah. Did you just do this, Katie? Is that what that was? Okay. That's good. We're all here. Um, so to get started, I want to say that when I look back on all of the um, oncologist appointments I've had, the treatments, the surgery, all of the follow-up experiences like with doctors and nurses and physical therapists, um, one of the things that I had to get used to in all of those places was this realization that they were all what I call environments of full disclosure. Meaning, there wasn't really anything, you know, uh, that I could hide from these people. And as someone who has, like, pretty much excelled at BSing his way through all sorts of things in life, um, each of those places and people would not really allow me uh, to do that. I had to listen to uncomfortable truths about my body, about my health, um, and you know, I had to listen to uncomfortable truths about what was happening inside of me and what the next steps would be. It's all very sort of scary and humbling and very, very uh, exposed. Uh, so I'm sure you can imagine. But the other thing, and this is probably the worst thing, was the stranger that gives you the bath in the hotel bed or the hospital bed. <laughs> There's pretty much nothing left after that. There's no self-respect whatsoever. Anybody with me on that? I mean, just, just think about it when you go home and there's a stranger that comes in and goes, I'm here to give you your bath. It's just a little bit, uh, I, feel, I feel very exposed, you know. There's, it feels like there's nothing, there's nothing left. You've been in those situations, too, I'm sure, where you had to walk through experiences where, um, you know, it involved an uncovering of who you are. And there wasn't any, you know, sense in trying to hide, and I'm sure it wasn't comfortable for you. Uh, you've all been in those situations. Being fully known, both body and soul and mind and spirit, it's not something that we typically run to quite quickly. The word vulnerable comes from the, the Latin meaning to injure. And to be vulnerable is to oftentimes be hurt and injured uh, in some way. And so, as you know, it's hard for us to hide ourselves uh, for too long. My wife is a teacher and um, has been a teacher for 25 years or something like that. And she has this, uh, <laughs> it's usually when she meets parents, but she has this, this phrase that she uses, which is, crazy does not hide for too long. <laughs> Just me? That's not funny? Okay. I thought that was really funny. Uh, we use that quite a bit. But as you know, it's hard to uh, hide ourselves for too long, at least from certain people. I just want to remix uh, Hebrews chapter 4, verses 12 through 13, the first part of our text. I mean, just think about it in light of some of the things I've already talked about. Indeed, it says the Word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, but you could just throw anything in there. Indeed, the Word of the oncologist is sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing until it divides soul from spirit, joints from marrow. It is able to judge the condition of who we are in the heart and the body. Or maybe uh, you're a student 
they're all gone because it's fall break, but I'll speak to uh, a few people that might be students here, but like, indeed, the word or the mind of the professor is sharper than any two-edged sword. I teach a freshman class at a college, and you know, I had to email the whole class this week to say, this is literally what my email said, just so you know, I can tell by your postings that you haven't read the book. Do you know what I mean? And it's like we somehow think we can just sort of skate through that, you know. Or uh, for those of you who are married, you know, this is quite simple. Indeed, the word of your spouse is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing until it divides, and from spirit, joints, and marrow, it is able to judge the thoughts and the intentions of your heart. And before your spouse, nothing is hidden, but all are naked and laid bare in the eyes of the one whom you married. I mean, this is just so simple. There are just certain people in our lives that know us uh, so well. And I understand the instinct to remain a bit of a mystery uh, in the presence of others because this is a world where things like judgment and critique are so pervasive, pervasive in our culture. And I'm, like you, probably so bored with and over the phrase cancel culture. Uh, it doesn't even interest me anymore, but there's no mistaking that there's something very human within that idea, which is this, that people are looking, that people are watching and looking for cracks and holes and mistakes and bad decisions and lapses of judgment. Because there's something in us as humans that wants to see the failings of others, and we like to know about those things. It's very troubling. Um, now, last Sunday, we talked about a God who sees us, a God who sees us. When he sees us, he notices us. We are important to him. Um, and in our text today, we are reminded that what God sees when he sees us is that he sees everything about us, that there is nothing about us that remains hidden to God. I mean, it's verse 13, again, and before him no creature is hidden, but all are naked and laid bare to the eyes of the one whom we must render an account. I think we all know this about God, but our interaction with God is still quite influenced by our real-world experiences uh, with other people whom we failed or with people that we are working hard to avoid or to be our true selves with from fear of judgment. And so the writer here is saying in Hebrews, look, you may be able to pull this off with people for a while, but you cannot pull this off with God. God is already very aware of who you are and even more so than maybe you know. Uh, he's more in touch with you than you are yourself. And so he says, and before him, no creature is hidden. We're all quite exposed uh, in front of God. But this isn't to frighten us. The writer is very clear. This is not one of those uh, texts that should frighten us. In fact, the opposite is quite true. Uh, it's, it's, it's the response of God's wholesale knowledge of our lives that turns out to be not judgment or banishment, but grace and mercy. That when God sees us in whatever broken state we may be in, 
What he turns up is the volume on mercy, not on exclusion or, again, banishment. Notice the two things that the writer says in verses 15 and 16. In verse 15, it says, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who in every respect has been tested as we are, yet without sin. So a high priest in ancient Judaism was uh, the go-between between you and your sin and God. And you would come to the temple and you would offer a sacrifice. And a priest, there were so many priests in the days of Jesus that it, your rotation at the temple may or may not have ever come. There were too many of them. And so the priest is not someone who is always there. He doesn't have a congregation. He doesn't have a parish. He doesn't have people uh, for whom he really, really cares about. He's just fulfilling a duty. And the thing about the high priest was he takes your sacrifice, he does the thing, and he does the stuff over your head and all this sort of stuff. And he says, you're forgiven, carry on, and then the next person, and then the next person, and the next person. But he doesn't really have a personal relationship with you, and he certainly doesn't sympathize with you. It's not even required of the priest. The priest is not required to feel bad for you, to even empathize or sympathize with you. It's not his job, or his. Or it's not in his job description anyway to uh, tell you things like, I know what you mean. Like if you come to confess to the priest, uh, the high priest doesn't have to say, I'm with you, that's me too. I mean, the struggle, it's you and me both. He doesn't do that. He doesn't really care. He doesn't really have any stake uh, in your life or in the lives of the other people who are coming. So there's no sense of sympathy uh, for them, uh, in them, for you. But the writer says, that's not the kind of priest that Jesus is. He does have a sympathy for us. He does sympathize in our weaknesses because he talks about how Jesus is God in the flesh, that Jesus came here and lived a life like you and me, and went through all the same things that we go through, that he has been tested or tempted in every way and yet was without sin. And so there's a, the writer is saying there's a real strong sense of sympathy uh, with Jesus when you come to him. And then in verse 16, I love this part, let us therefore approach the throne of grace with boldness so that we may receive the mercy and find grace to help in time of need. And so the implication here is, or the application here is, since we know that Jesus is sympathizing with us in our weaknesses and our brokenness and our failings, the, the application for us is that we approach him with a sense of boldness, uh, that we approach him with a sense of confidence, some translations say, that he is not going to exclude us or banish us or push us away, but instead embrace us. Let us approach the throne of grace with boldness. Novelist Leslie Jameson said, my notion of divinity or God no longer involves an appraising, tally-keeping pseudo-father in the sky who will give me enough gold stars if I do enough good things in this life. I'm trying to get away from the frameworks of grace that rely on sufficiency and instead lean into the notions of pleasant ambush, desire, and care. Now, I know that this is the pastor thing 
to say, and many of you already know this, but allow me a moment to remind you very quickly here that we are talking about a God whose response to whatever is broken in us is it's not a response of judgment, but of grace and mercy. Then when we approach God with whatever it is that's bothering us, plaguing us, even dismantling us, the writer here reminds us to approach God with a real sense of boldness. I love what the writer in 1 John uh, says. He says, God is love, and those who abide in love abide in God, and God abides in them. Love has been perfected among us in this, that we may have boldness on the day of judgment. Because as he is, so are we in this world. And he says in verse 18, there is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not reached perfection in love. We love because he first loved us. I was uh, a youth minister for a long time, um, and I was in a church on the south side, and this friend of mine, uh, he was an older guy, he was one of the dads of my, uh, one of my students, and he had been bringing this guy to church with him, and they were railroad workers. And so the guy he was bringing to church with him was this, like, just this rough, you know, railroad worker. And, but church was never really his thing. But he started coming with him, and he came for a while, and then eventually, this guy becomes a Christian. And I watched him get baptized in the sanctuary. It was incredible. Um, I, sometimes they would let me preach as a youth pastor. Um, and he would sit in the front row, and he would, he would curse. Like I would say something, and he would like curse, and, uh, which was fine with me, uh, as, as many of you know. But... Uh, but it's because, like, he doesn't really know, like, how you're supposed to, like, he doesn't know that, you know? But anyway, the guy who had been bringing him and baptized him took him to his Sunday school class, and at the end of the Sunday school class, you know how, how it goes, anybody have anything we should be praying about? Any prayer requests? And if you've been around church for any number of years, you know how this works. Uh, any prayer requests? Usually, 90% uh, of them are about other people. Yeah, if you could uh, pray for my friend, uh, I can't really tell you everything, but the marriage isn't going well, and uh, it's on and on and on, you know? It's always about somebody else, somebody else, or maybe there's a health issue, if you could pray for me, I'm having some tests run, whatever, yes, this is a sort of prayer thing. Well, this one guy, new Christian, railroad worker, whatever, he just, he's the first one, this guy's telling me the story, any prayer requests? He's like, I got some. And he just starts unloading the problems in his life. And it gets real uncomfortable in the room because it's, it's getting real, you know? And the guy telling me the story goes, I thought it was great because clearly he just doesn't know the rules yet, you know? Isn't that great? He just doesn't understand the rules of being a Christian. And maybe that's a good thing. Maybe it's good that he felt comfortable just saying what he wanted to say. And my questions for you are, do you struggle with this? Especially with God. I mean, is it a wrestling match between you and these ideas of grace and mercy? Do you have a hard time being honest 
with God about your life as though you're hiding something from him, some fear of God finding out about you? Do you struggle with that? Do you struggle with um, telling others what's going on in your life for fear of judgment? Um, I do want to say that if you do, that's okay, because I think most of us will always have that struggle. It is in part because we live in a world that's so much more interested in retribution. It's not a world that likes, I mean, actually the world loves failure because it's a world of retribution. But the thing is, and this is what the writer is challenging us with, but into that world, we carry as people of God this alternative message one that tells a story of a God who is quite the opposite of the world that we live in when it comes to failings. That we have this message that says there is a different way to walk through this life and this experience we call life. And it's not a road paved with judgment, but with grace and mercy. And the church has this calling to be an expression of that quality of God. There's two uh, things that Jesus says that um, are troubling to me. The first one is to his disciples in John chapter 20, he says uh, to them, if you forgive the sins of any, so if you go out and forgive people, he says to them, they are forgiven. But if you retain the sins of any, they are retained. What is Jesus saying? He's putting in the hands of his disciples this power to forgive. And he says, if you forgive, people will experience that forgiveness. If you don't forgive, they won't. Something a little more scary that he says in Matthew chapter 6, he says, forgive, for if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. That's a heavier statement, isn't it? If you forgive, then you will be forgiven. If you don't, then you won't. What does Jesus mean by this? Well, I've struggled with that for many years, but in reflection and in study and reflection and processing It seems to me what Jesus is saying is this. If you cease to practice forgiveness in your life, you will over time not recognize forgiveness when it's given to you. The most miserable Christians I know, there's two things about them. They don't forgive people, and the idea of God's grace is offensive to them because they like failure. They like to be right. And if you don't practice, Jesus is saying, if you don't, if you don't stay in the forgiveness game and continue to practice that behavior, you will over time lose touch with what it even feels like to be forgiven. And the idea of God forgiving you is completely off the radar. It doesn't make sense. Grace and mercy are often foreign sounds to a judgmental ear. And so Jesus is saying, be careful. And mostly because 
We share this world with fellow people. We're all human. Uh, Rowan Williams, former Archbishop of Canterbury and a great theologian in his book on, uh, titled Being Human writes this. And P.S., I've read this a hundred times out loud because it's hard to read him. So if I mess up, have grace. Thank you. He writes, another way of putting this is that we ascribe personal dignity or worth to people, to human individuals, because of the sense that in relationship, each of us has a presence or a meaning in someone else's existence. We live in another's life. To be the point where lines of the relationship intersect means that we can't simply lift some abstract thing called the person out of it all. We're talking about a reality in which people enter into the experience, the aspiration, the sense of self of others. And that capacity to live in the life of another, to have a life in someone else's life, is part of the implication of this profound mysteriousness about personal reality. And then he says this, deny this, and you are back with that deeply unsatisfactory model in which someone has to decide who is going to count as human. It's a beautiful description of what it means to be human, that each of us carries with us the other people in our lives, that to be human is to be in community, and to be in community is to see the other person as someone in God's image, and to be patient and gracious and merciful with them. And so my closing challenge for us is that we would be a congregation where we see others as people who may need to know that they are loved, they are cared for, and that they are wrapped in the grace of God. That we would be a place where these ideals of grace and mercy are not things to consider, but they are behaviors to practice. Because the world, in my experience, the world is dying in this vacuum of absolution. There's a real sense of people needing to know that they are forgiven, both relationally and spiritually. And the church may just be the last place on earth that still entertains this offensive notion that all is not lost and no one is ever too far gone. Yeah.